This is an audio version of Population Ethics Without Axiology, a framework, published on the 3rd of August 2022 by Lucas Glor. This post introduces a framework for thinking about population ethics, population ethics without axiology. In its last section, I sketch the implications of adopting my framework for evaluating the thesis of long-termism. Audio notes you can use chapter headings if they're available in your player to navigate to that point. Before explaining what's different about my proposal, I'll describe what I understand to be the standard approach it seeks to replace, which I call axiology-focused. Skip to the section Summary, Population Ethics Without Axiology for a summary of my proposal. Audio note, likewise, if chapter headings are available, you can use those. The axiology-focused approach goes as follows. First, there's the search for axiology, a theory of intrinsic value. For example, the axiology may state that good experiences are what's valuable. Then, there's further discussion on whether ethics contains other independent parts, or whether everything derives from that axiology. For instance, a consequentialist may frame their disagreement with deontology as follows. Quote, Consequentialism is the view that making the world a better place is all that matters. While deontologists think that other things, for example rights or duties, matter more. End quote. Similarly, someone could frame population-ethical disagreements as follows. Quote, Some philosophers think that all that matters is more value in the world and less disvalue. Totalism, in quotes. Others hold that further considerations also matter. For instance, it seems odd to compare someone's existence to never having been born. So we can discuss what it means to benefit a person in such contexts. End quote. In both examples, the discussion takes for granted that there's something that's valuable in itself. The still open questions come afterward, after, here's what's valuable. In my view, the axiology-focused approach prematurely directs moral discourse toward particular answers. I want to outline what it could look like to do population ethics, in quotes, without an objective axiology or the assumption that something has intrinsic value. To be clear, there's a loose subjective meaning of axiology, in quotes, where anyone who takes systematizing stances on moral issues as opposed to moral particularism, implicitly has an axiology. This subjective sense isn't what I'm arguing against. Instead, I'm arguing against the stronger claim that there exists a true theory of value, based on which some things are objectively good, good regardless of circumstance, independent of people's interests or goals. And a footnote here reads, see also the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on intrinsic value. The text goes on. This doesn't leave me with anything goes, in quotes. In my sequence on moral anti-realism, I argued that rejecting moral realism doesn't deserve any of the connotations people typically associate with nihilism, in quotes. And there's a footnote here that reads, Quoting from a summary on another Effective Altruism Forum post, quote, In theism versus atheism debates, atheists don't replace God with anything when they stop believing in him. By contrast, in realism versus anti-realism debates, 
anti-realists continue to think there's structure, in quotes, to the domain in question. What changes is how they interpret and relate to that structure. Accordingly, moral anti-realism doesn't mean anything goes, in quotes. Therefore, the label nihilism, which some people use synonymously with normative anti-realism, seems uncalled for. The version of anti-realism I defend in my sequence fits the slogan, morality is real, in quotes, but underdefined. Underdefinedness means that there are multiple defensible answers to some moral issues. In particular, people may come away with different moral beliefs depending on their evaluative criteria what they're interested in, which perspectives they choose to highlight, etc. Overall, the way some moral philosophers use nihilism interchangeably with anti-realism seems surprisingly unfair. Imagine if, in the free will debate, the proponents of libertarian free will pretended that compatibilist positions didn't exist, that the only alternative to libertarian free will was it makes no difference if you looked left and right before crossing the street. And that's the end of that footnote. Back on with the main text. Note also that when I criticise the concept of intrinsic value in quotes, this isn't about whether good things can outweigh bad things. Within my framework, one can still express beliefs like specific states of the world are worthy of taking serious effort and even risks if necessary to bring about. Instead, I'm arguing against the idea that good things are good because of intrinsic value. My alternative account, inspired by Johann Frick, who I'll discuss more soon, says that things are good when they hold what we might call conditional value, when they stand in specific relation to people's interests or goals. In this view, valuing the potential for happiness and flourishing in our long-run future isn't a forced move. Instead, it depends on the nature and scope of existing people's interests or goals and for highly morally motivated people like effective altruists, on one's favoured notion of doing the most moral or altruistic thing. Section heading, Outlook. In the rest of this post, I give a summary of my framework. I warn the reader how it can be challenging to understand one another when discussing reasoning frameworks as opposed to object-level claims. I give examples of the axiology-focused slash something-has-intrinsic-value outlook from effective altruist writings, so readers get a good sense of what I'm arguing against. I introduce two building blocks to underscore my framework, Johann Frick's critique of the, quote, teleological conception of well-being, end quote, and David Head's idea that issues of creation slash procreation may be, quote, outside the scope of ethics. I introduce my framework at length, expanding on the summary, discussing applications, flowchart. I mention some limits of my proposal and point to areas where further development seems necessary. I discuss the implications of my framework for evaluating long-termism. In short, all but the strongest formulations of long-termism still go through under plausible assumptions but the distance between long-termism and alternative views shortens. Section heading. Summary. Population ethics without axiology. Here the argument is summarised as a list of bullet points. Here's the first one. Ethics is about interests slash goals. Next point. Nothing is intrinsically valuable, 
but various things can be conditionally valuable if grounded in someone's interests or goals. Next point, the rule focus on interests slash goals has comparatively clear implications in fixed population contexts. The minimal morality of don't be a jerk means we shouldn't violate others' interests or goals and perhaps even help them where it's easy and our comparative advantage. The ambitious morality of do the most moral or altruistic thing is something like preference utilitarianism. Next point. On creating new people or beings, focus on interests or goals no longer gives unambiguous results. The number of interests or goals isn't fixed, and the types of interests or goals aren't fixed. Technically, interests or goals aren't necessarily fixed in fixed population contexts either, since we can imagine people with underdefined goals or goals that don't mind being changed in specific ways. Next point. This leaves population ethics underdefined with two different perspectives. That of existing or sure to exist people slash beings, what they want from the future, and that of possible people slash beings, what they want from their potential creators. Next point. Without an objective axiology, any attempt to unify these perspectives involves subjective judgment calls. Next point. People with the motivation to dedicate some of their life to, quote, doing the most moral or altruistic thing will want clear guidance on what to do or pursue. To get this, they must adopt personal, but defensible, population ethically complete specifications of the target concept of doing the most moral or altruistic thing. Next point. Just like the concept athletic fitness has several defensible interpretations, for example, the difference between a 100-metre sprinter and a marathon runner. So, I argue, does doing the most moral or altruistic thing. Next point. In particular, there's a trade-off where cashing out this target concept primarily according to the perspective of other existing people leaves less room for altruism on the second perspective, that of newly created people or beings and vice versa. Next point. Accordingly, people can think of population ethics, in quotes, in several different, equally defensible ways. Here's a list of three ways they can think of population ethics. They're each listed with detail. I'll read them out, and then I'll read the detail. There's the subjectivist person-affecting views, subjectivist totalism, and subjectivist antinatalism. And here's the detail. Subjectivist person-affecting views. I pay attention to creating new people or beings only to the minimal degree of don't be a jerk, while focusing my caring budget on helping existing and sure-to-exist people or beings. Subjectivist totalism. I count appeals from possible people or beings just as much as existing or sure-to-exist people or beings. On the question, which appeals do I prioritise, my view is... Ones that see themselves as benefiting from being given a happy existence. And subjectivist antinatalism. I count appeals from possible people or beings just as much as existing or sure-to-exist people or beings. On the question, which appeals do I prioritise, my view is, 
ones that don't mind non-existence, but care to avoid a negative existence. There was also a footnote here in this point, just before that list. It came after the words equally defensible, and the footnote reads, Readers may wonder why I'm confident that several interpretations are equally defensible in quotes, as opposed to the jury is still out. I concede that I'm not certain. Still, equally defensible interpretations are my default view, whereas there's a single moral truth would be a surprising discovery. Because of the is-ought problem, we have to, quote, get normativity started by stipulating some assumptions on what we care about. What makes up a defensible interpretation of a domain depends on the features we choose to highlight. See Luke Mulhouse's post on pluralistic moral reductionism, or my discussion of evaluation criteria in various places along my moral anti-realism sequence. And there are some links there. In my framework, I highlight that morality, in quotes, seems to be about interests or goals. We can see why this framing has ambiguous applications in contexts where interests or goals aren't fixed. Since I don't see any uncontroversial or uncontested extension principles, it stands to argue that population ethics will remain underdefined. Sure, there's a remote chance that a future philosopher will devise a brilliant argument that convinces everyone to adopt a particular normative theory. However, that seems far-fetched. And even then, we could wonder if maybe that philosopher just happened to be good at rhetoric, or that people's moral intuitions became more homogenous in the meantime for reasons unrelated to normative truth. That's the end of that footnote, and we move to the next point. The above descriptions non-exhaustively represent morality-inspired views about what to do with the future. The minimal morality of don't be a jerk still applies to each perspective, and recommends cooperating with those who endorse different specifications of ambitious morality. And the final point in this list? One arguably interesting feature of my framework is that it makes standard objections against person-affecting views no longer seem as problematic. A common opinion among effective altruists is that person-affecting views are difficult to make work. In particular, the objection is that they give unacceptable answers to what's best for new people or beings. My framework highlights that maybe person-affecting views aren't meant to answer that question. Instead, I'd argue that someone with a person-affecting view has answered a relevant earlier question, so that what's best for new people or beings no longer holds priority. Specifically to the question What's the most moral or altruistic thing? They answered, benefiting existing or short-to-exist people or beings. In that light, underdefinedness around creating new people or beings is to be expected. It's what happens when there's a trade-off between two possible values. Here, the perspective of existing or short-to-exist people and that of possible people. And someone decides that one option matters more than the other. And we had a couple of footnotes in this paragraph. One was after, A common opinion among effective altruists is that person-affecting views are difficult to make work. And it reads, For instance, Hilary Greaves, 2017, on the neutrality required for asymmetric person-affecting views, where creating a miserable person is bad, 
but failing to create a happy person is neutral, writes that, quote, it turns out to be remarkably difficult to formulate any remotely acceptable axiology that captures this idea of neutrality. That's the end of that footnote. There was another footnote in this paragraph as well, and it came after, in particular, the objection is that they give unacceptable answers to what's best for new people or beings. And it reads, For example, person-affecting views may violate the independence of irrelevant alternatives or the transitivity of better-than relations. And there's a post linked here with some examples. That's the end of those footnotes, and we move on to the next section. Section heading. Ontology differences can impede successful communication. I see the axiology-focused approach, the view that something has intrinsic value, as an assumption in people's ethical ontology. The way I'm using it here, someone's ontology consists of the concepts they use for thinking about a domain, how they conceptualise their option space. By proposing a framework for population ethics, I'm implicitly offering answers to questions like, what are we trying to figure out? What makes for a good solution? And what are the concepts we want to use to reason successfully about this domain? Discussions about changing one's reasoning framework can be challenging because people are accustomed to hearing object-level arguments and interpreting them within their preferred ontology. For instance, when first encountering utilitarianism, someone who thinks about ethics primarily in terms of there are fundamental rights, ethics is about the particular content of those rights, would be turned off. Utilitarianism doesn't respect fundamental rights, so it'll seem crazy to them. However, asking, how does utilitarianism address the all-important issue of some concept that doesn't exist within the utilitarian ontology, begs the question. To give utilitarianism a fair hearing, someone with a rights-based ontology would have to ponder a more nuanced set of questions. So, let it be noted that I'm arguing for a change to our reasoning frameworks. To get the most out of this post, I encourage readers with the axiology-focused ontology to try to fully inhabit my alternative framework, even if that initially means reasoning in a way that could seem strange. And a footnote here reads, For more, totally optional, context... See also the overview of my sequence on moral anti-realism, which fleshes out more of my thinking. And that's the end of the footnote. Section heading. Something has intrinsic value, in quotes. EA examples. To give readers a better sense of the some things have intrinsic value outlook and its prevalence, I'll include examples from effective altruism. From the Effective Altruism Forum wiki article, Axiology, quote, Axiology, also known as theory of the good and value theory, in a narrow sense of that term, is a branch of normative ethics concerned with what kind of things and outcomes are morally good, or intrinsically valuable, end quote. Clicking the hyperlink to intrinsically valuable, we get, quote, Intrinsic value, sometimes called terminal value, is the value something has for its own sake. Instrumental value is the value something has by virtue of its effects on other things, end quote. From the Effective Altruism Forum wiki article, Wellbeing, quote, Wellbeing, 
also called welfare, is what is good for a person or what makes their life go well or is in a person's interest. It is generally agreed that all plausible moral views regard well-being as having intrinsic value, with some views, welfareist views, holding that nothing but well-being is intrinsically valuable. End quote. From the 80,000 Hours article, Long-Termism, the Moral Significance of Future Generations. Quote, However, the bottom line is that almost every philosopher who has worked on the issue doesn't think we should discount the intrinsic value of welfare. That is, from the point of view of the universe, one person's happiness is worth just the same amount, no matter when it occurs. End quote. From the utilitarianism.net website, written and maintained by effective altruists, and here's a collection of three quotes from that website. I'll just read them continuously. Quote, After all, when thinking about what makes some possible universe good, the most obvious answer is that it contains a predominance of awesome, flourishing lives. How could that not be better than a barren rock? Any view that denies this verdict is arguably too nihilistic and divorced from humane values to be worth taking seriously. Next quote, A core element of utilitarianism is welfareism. The view that only the welfare, also called well-being, of individuals determines how good a particular state of the world is. While consequentialists claim that what is right is to promote the amount of good in the world, welfareists specifically equate the good to be promoted with well-being. The term well-being is used in philosophy to describe everything that is in itself good for someone, so-called intrinsic or basic welfare goods, as opposed to things that are only instrumentally good. For example, happiness is intrinsically good for you, it directly increases your well-being. And the last quote from utilitarianism.net. What things are in themselves good for a person? The diverging answers to this question give rise to a variety of theories of well-being, each of which regards different things as the components of well-being. The three main theories of well-being are hedonism, desire theories, and objective list theories. Section heading Two building blocks. My alternative framework is based on two building blocks, which I'll now introduce. Heading. Against the teleological view of well-being. Johann Frick. This section draws from Johann Frick's excellent paper, Conditional Reasons and the Procreation Asymmetry. Hat tip to Michael St. Jules for his EA Forum post on the topic. Quotes by Frick show why I'm sceptical of intrinsic value, in quotes, and describe the type of account I'd replace it with. To summarise, Frick criticises the standard approach in population ethics for prematurely privileging an assumption, namely that well-being is something to be promoted. He points out that there's an alternative. Things matter conditionally because they're grounded in someone's interests or goals. His view is best understood in contrast to what it criticises, the teleological conception of well-being. So here's a series of quotes. Quote, According to the teleologist, the appropriate response to what is good or valuable is to promote it, ensuring that as much of it exists as possible. The proper response to disvalue is to prevent it, or to ensure that as little of it exists as possible. 
Some teleological thinkers, such as G.E. Moore, see such a close connection between goodness and its promotion that Moore often characterises the good in terms of what ought to exist. The next quote. Next, note that viewing some value F as to be promoted implies that there is no deep moral distinction between increasing the degree to which F is realised amongst existing potential bearers of that value and creating new bearers of that value. Next quote. By treating the moral significance of persons and their well-being as derivative of their contribution to valuable states of affairs, it reverses what strikes most of us as the correct order of dependence. Human well-being matters because... People matter, not vice versa. End quote. Frick also makes an analogy between procreation and promise-making. Just like it's good to keep promises if one makes them, the things that fulfil people's interests or goals are good if they, the people, are created. Unlike Frick, I'm not advocating a particular normative theory. So I'm not saying the analogy between procreating and promise-making is the only way to think about the matter. My framework is compatible with totalism, or a subjectivist version of totalism, in population ethics, which doesn't contain a procreation asymmetry. However, I concede that views with a procreation asymmetry become more viable options under Frick's changed conception of well-being, or why well-being matters. Heading. Population ethics as, quote, outside the scope of ethics. David Head. I'll discuss passages from David Head's book, Genethics, to introduce the second building block. The term genethics never caught on. The field became known as population ethics instead. The introduction to Head's book is titled, Playing God, an excellent perspective for illustrating the issues under discussion. Quote, the question is whether value itself is attached only to human beings, or another defined group of moral subjects, or if it can also be ascribed to impersonal states of the world. If value can be attached only to moral subjects, then the question of their creation escapes value judgment. For how can the pre-human world be evaluated as, for example, inferior to the world populated with human subjects, if there is in it no anchor, in quotes, to which value can be attached. In terms of the story of creation, when God sees that everything he had made was very good, is it very good for him, very good for created humanity, or very good simpliciter? End quote. Hade's last sentence captures a core component of my proposal. Following Frick's point that value is conditional value, no objective axiology, no grounding perspective from which to evaluate what's, quote, good simpliciter, we're left with two different perspectives. First, that of existing people or beings, in Head's example, God all by himself. Second, that of possible people or beings, here, humanity, perhaps alongside other possible civilizations God could have contemplated creating. The last perspective Haid discusses, that of good simpliciter, is non-existent. Haid also made some noteworthy observations on methodological challenges. Quote, 
Not to know the answer to an important question is bad enough. Not to know how to go about solving it is even worse. It seems that Genesis problems, that is, matters of creation of new people or beings, also prompt a sense of methodological uneasiness, raising doubts concerning the definition and scope of basic ethical concepts, the validity of certain methods of justification in ethical argumentation, and indeed, the very limits of ethics. End quote. Indeed, another core claim in my framework is that there are issues within population ethics for which there's no objective answer. Section heading. Population ethics without axiology. I'll now sketch my framework. I'll proceed in the following order. Background assumptions and further building blocks. Complements and elucidates the points from the summary which we heard earlier. Caring about the future, a flowchart. Visualises the workings of my framework and its option space. And applications, examples. Ideas for filling in further assumptions when applying the framework. So here is the first of those three sections. Background assumptions and further building blocks. Heading. Ethics is about interests or goals. There's no objective axiology, in quotes, implies, among other things, that there's no goal that's correct for everyone who's self-oriented to adopt. Accordingly, goals can differ between people. See my post, The Life Goals Framework, How I Reason About Morality as an Anti-Realist. There are, I think, good reasons for conceptualising ethics as being about goals or interests. Dismantling Hedonism-Inspired Moral Realism, another article, explains why I don't see ethics as being about experiences. Against Irreducible Normativity, also another article, explains why I don't see much use in conceptualising ethics as being about things we can't express in non-normative terminology. The next heading? Outside the scope of normal ethics. In my ontology, population ethics is no longer a crisp domain with a single answer. Instead, it has areas where the approach focus on interests or goals leaves things underdefined. These include how to unify the two perspectives, that of existing people and that of newly or newly to be created people, and to the degree that we care about what's best for possible people, which appeals should we prioritise when we cannot do right by everyone? Next heading. How do we know the views of possible people? We can't talk to not-yet-existing people. When I discuss what possible people or beings want, I imagine a scenario where they come to exist and we ask them questions about how they compare their existence to a hypothetical where they had never been born. If you think this approach is very subjective, that's partly my point. Next heading. There's a tension between the beliefs there's an objective axiology and people are free to choose their life goals. Many effective altruists hesitate to say, one of you must be wrong, when one person cares greatly about living forever while the other doesn't, provided both people are familiar with arguments for or against living forever. In practice, many people may not have engaged carefully with these arguments, so we should expect more people to want to live forever than it appears at first glance. By contrast, when two people disagree on population ethics, one of you must be wrong, seems to be the standard implicit opinion. 
I think these two attitudes are in tension. To the degree people are confident that life goals are up to the individual to decide or pursue, I suggest that they lean in on this belief. I expect that resolving the tension in that way, leaning in on the belief people are free to choose their life goals, giving up on there's an axiology that applies to everyone, makes my framework more intuitive and gives a better sense of what the framework is for, what it's trying to accomplish. Heading. Minimal morality versus ambitious morality. This section is structured as a series of bullet points. Here's the first one. My framework creates space for a distinction between minimal morality and ambitious morality. Next point. Minimal morality is, don't be a jerk, in quotes. It's about respecting that others' interests or goals may be different from yours. It is low-demanding, therefore compatible with non-moral life goals. It is contractualist or cooperation-focused in spirit. But in a sense, that stays nice even without an expectation of reciprocity. And there are a couple of footnotes here. One is after the word contractualist. And it reads, We can distinguish between low-demanding and high-demanding versions of contractualism. Minimal morality is low-demanding contractualism. By contrast, high-demanding contractualism would demand from everyone to exclusively follow altruistic goals. And there was a second footnote here, after stays nice even without an expectation of reciprocity, and it reads, In other words, I'm not talking about cooperation that's optimally beneficial even for self-oriented goals. Instead, I'm mainly appealing to the pro-social instinct to follow fairness norms, which we can extend to fairness to animals or future generations despite knowing that these interest groups cannot reciprocate. That's it for those footnotes. Now we return to the next point in minimal morality versus ambitious morality. Ambitious morality is, quote, doing the most moral or altruistic thing. It is care morality, consequentialist in spirit. It's relevant for morally motivated individuals, like effective altruists, for whom minimal morality isn't demanding enough. Next point. That said, minimal morality isn't just a low-demanding version of ambitious morality. In many contexts, it has its own authority, something that wouldn't make sense within the axiology-focused framework. After all, if an objective axiology governed all aspects of morality, a low-demanding morality would still be directed toward that axiology. Footnote. For instance, if hedonist axiology was objectively correct, then we could think of classical utilitarianism as ambitious morality, while minimal morality would be something like the set of not-too-demanding social norms that produce the best consequences from a classical utilitarian perspective. Back to the main text. In my framework, minimal morality is axiology-independent. It protects everyone's interests or goals not just those of proponents of a particular axiology. Next point. Admittedly, there are specific contexts where minimal morality is like a low-demanding version of ambitious morality. Namely, contexts where care morality and cooperation morality have the most overlap. For instance, say we're thinking about moral reasons towards a specific person with well-defined interests or goals, and we're equal to them in terms of capability levels, in quotes. 
For example, we cannot grant all their wishes with godlike power. So empowering them is the best way to advance their goals. In that scenario, care morality, in quotes, and cooperation morality, in quotes, arguably fall together. Since it seems reasonable to assume that the other person knows what's best for them, promoting their interests or goals from a cooperative standpoint should amount to the same thing as helping them from a care or altruism standpoint. One caveat here is that people may have self-sacrificing goals. For instance, say John is an effective altruist who's intent on spending all his efforts on making the world a better place. Here, it seems like caring about John the person comes apart from caring about John the aspiring utilitarian robot. Still, on a broad enough conception of interests slash goals, it would always be better if John was doing well himself while accomplishing his altruistic goals. I often talk about interests slash goals instead of just goals to highlight this difference. In my vocabulary, interests, in quotes, aren't always rationally endorsed, but they are essential to someone's flourishing. Next point. Still, cooperation morality and care morality come apart in contexts where others' interests or goals aren't fixed. And this point has three numbered sub-points. One, someone has underdefined interests or goals. Two, it's underdefined how many people or beings with interests or goals there will be. And three, it's underdefined which interests or goals a new person will have. In such contexts, Cooperation morality says, pick a permissible option. Highly morally motivated people will likely find that unsatisfying and want to go beyond it. Instead of, let's not be jerks, they want to do what's best for others. They want ambitious care morality. To figure out and apply what it means to, quote, do the most moral slash altruistic thing. Next point. Without an objective axiology... This target concept is underdefined. Accordingly, differently morally motivated people may fill in the gaps in different ways. At first glance, this looks like it could create tensions. However, because minimal morality has its own authority, altruists with different conceptions of ambitious morality should endorse don't be jerks towards each other too. When we look at the motivation to develop and adopt some ambitious morality, That motivation doesn't say minimal morality is wrong, only that it's incomplete. Effective altruists want to go beyond minimal morality, not against it. Next point. Where people have well-specified interests or goals, it would be a preposterous conception of care morality to stick someone into an experience machine against their will, or kill them against their will to protect them from future suffering. So, Whenever a single-minded specification of care morality, for example, hedonistic utilitarianism or negative utilitarianism, contradicts someone's well-specified interests or goals, that type of care morality seems misapplied and out of place. And the final point under this heading? Because ambitious morality is underdefined only in places where people's interests or goals are underdefined, everything works out fine. Different morally motivated individuals may come away with different specifications of ambitious morality, but they never endorse violating minimal morality. And that's the end of that list. Here's the next heading. 
Why specify ambitious morality at all? If ambitious morality is underdefined, why not leave it at that? Why fill in the gaps with something subjective? Doesn't that go against the spirit of our motivation to pursue what's moral? Just like the concept athletic fitness has multiple defensible interpretations, for example, the differences between a 100-metre sprinter, a marathon runner, and someone who exercises to minimise cardiovascular risks, so does doing the most moral or altruistic thing. Suppose your childhood dream was to be ideally athletically fit. In that case, whether you should care about a specific interpretation of the target concept or embrace its underdefinedness is an open question. My advice for resolving this question is, think about which aspects of fitness you feel most drawn to, if any. This paragraph had a couple of footnotes. The first one was after these different defensible interpretations of athletic fitness, and it said, Professional athletes tend to overstrain their bodies to a point where specific health risks are increased, compared to their healthiest cohorts. And another footnote after, think about which aspects of fitness you feel most drawn to, if any, reads, I also give further reaching and more nuanced advice on how to think about issues related to moral uncertainty, meta-ethical uncertainty, etc. in my post, The Moral Uncertainty Rabbit Hole Fully Excavated. For a summary of action-relevant takeaways, see the section of that article, Selected Takeaways, Good versus Bad Reasons for Deferring to More Moral Reflection, and there are links here in the post to those articles. That's the end of those two footnotes. Now we move to the next heading, still in this section, background assumptions and further building blocks. Heading. Population ethics from the perspective of existing people. Envision technologically very developed settlers standing in front of a giant garden. There's all this unused land and a long potential future ahead of them. What do they want to do with it? How do they address various trade-offs? For example, risks of creating dystopian sub-communities. From the perspective of existing people, population ethics is about figuring out how much we care about the long-run future, if at all, and what we want to make of it. I see this as more of an existentialist question about meaning or purpose than a moral one, though it becomes also moral for individuals who want to dedicate their lives to, quote, doing the most moral or altruistic thing. Next heading, population ethics from the perspective of possible people. Newly created beings are at the whims of their creators. For example, children are vulnerable to their parents. However, might makes right is not an ideal, even minimally morally inclined creators would endorse. We can view population ethics from the perspective of possible people or beings as a court hearing. Possible people or beings speak up for their interests or goals. With potential creators who are only following the minimal morality of don't be jerks, the possible people or beings must resort to complaints to hold their creators accountable. By contrast, towards altruistically motivated potential creators, they can also make appeals. The next heading, Complaints versus Appeals. Complaints. Something counts as a complaint if someone who cares about fairness, don't be a jerk, cannot defensively ignore your complaint, even if their goals otherwise don't include concern for your well-being. Appeals. Anything you want to ask of someone who is already motivated to benefit you. 
minimal morality applied to possible people or beings is about avoiding complaints. Ambitious morality applied to them is about granting appeals. Because different possible people or beings make different appeals, ambitious morality focused on possible people or beings is underdefined. Specifying it requires further, axiological in quotes, judgment calls. And there was a footnote here after, because different possible people or beings make different appeals, and it reads, For instance, some possible people would rather not be created than be at a small risk of experiencing intense suffering. Others would gladly take significant risks, since they care immensely about the chance of a happy existence. And that's the end of the footnote. We move to the next heading in this section. Heading. The trade-off between benefiting sure-to-exist people, or beings, versus possible people or beings. In the summary, I wrote, Cashing out that target concept, doing the most moral or altruistic thing, primarily according to the perspective of existing and sure-to-exist people, leaves less room for altruism on the second perspective, that of possible people, and vice versa. By this, I mean that we have to choose one or the other. Either our ambitious morality is primarily about existing, and sure to exist, people or beings, or we also want what's best for possible people or beings. While the latter doesn't give possible people or beings more weight, the large numbers at stake will dominate in practice. And there's a footnote here. Since ambitious morality fills the gaps of minimal morality, rather than overriding it, someone with an, in practice, future-focused view would still interact with existing and sure-to-exist people within the bounds of the social contract from minimal morality, even though there's a sense in which much more is at stake for possible people or beings. Section heading. Caring about the future. A flowchart. So here is a photograph showing a hand-drawn flowchart in handwriting that is on a large piece of paper. If you're using a player or a platform that supports viewing images, you can look at your screen now to check this out, or check it out in the original post. So for this audio version of the post, I'm going to go on a series of walks down this flowchart. I'll explain the branches that we come to, and then take them all systematically, reaching each of the terminating points in the flowchart. If you're not interested in this description, you can skip to the next chapter heading, Applications. So we start at the top. You exist as a hyper-systematizing philosophy nerd. Now we ask the question, do you have the life goal, do the most moral or altruistic thing? And that's the primary branching here. Let's say we said no. You're not interested in following any ambitious morality. Do you want to avoid being a jerk? If no, frowny face. If yes, you follow minimal morality. What are your life goals? Four possible goals. You care about the future of your children, friends, and or loved ones, etc. So the future matters to you to some degree. Or you care about human survival for personal, aesthetic reasons. Go team human! Again, the future matters to you to some degree. Or you're self-oriented and do mind dying, so the future matters to you to some degree. Those three paths terminate there. Or if your life goal is self-oriented and you don't mind dying, then the future doesn't matter to you, and the chart ends there. So that's everything under no for do you have the life goal, do the most moral or altruistic thing. 
So now if we answered yes or partly to that top-level branch, you're interested in further specifying ambitious morality, which includes minimal morality by default. So do you think doing the most moral or altruistic thing means to primarily benefit existing and sure to exist people or beings? Say we said no. Then you're in search of an account of what it means to best benefit possible people or beings. Now we can go one of two ways. Either we think being born can never be a benefit, tranquilism or anti-frustrationism. So your ambitious morality is subjective antinatalism. So a downside-focused version of long-termism is directly true for you. And that's a terminating point in the flowchart. Going back up to you're in search of an account of what it means to best benefit people or beings. Say we answered, you think people who are grateful for a happy existence were benefited by being born. Joe Carl Smith's against neutrality about creating happy lives. So your ambitious morality is subjective totalism. And long-termism is directly true for you. So that sums up everything under the no branch of do you think doing the most moral or altruistic thing means to primarily benefit existing and sure to exist people or beings? So say we answered yes to that, then you hold a subjective person-affecting view as your ambitious morality. Do others care about the long-run future? If yes a lot, then long-termism is indirectly true for you. And if no, very few do, then long-termism is false for you. And that would also be a terminating point in this flowchart. Section heading. Applications. Examples. I'll now give some examples for applying my framework. I'm not particularly attached to any specifics. Instead, I'm mostly arguing in favour of a particular way of thinking about such principles. For example, how to apply them, their reach, etc. Heading. Population ethics for possible people or beings. Applying the court hearing analogy. In my framework, population ethics for possible people or beings is like a court hearing where possible people or beings address their potential creators. Creators interested in minimal morality can only be held accountable via complaints. That is, possible people object they didn't receive even the minimal consideration of don't be a jerk. Complaints, examples. Don't create minds that regret being born. Don't create minds and place them in situations where their interests are only somewhat fulfilled if you could easily have provided them with better circumstances. Don't create minds destined for constant misery, even if you also equipped them with a strict preference for existence over non-existence. Note that these principles aren't meant to be absolutes. Instead, there's an implicit unless you acted according to a defensible conception of what's best for possible people or beings. For instance, someone who endorses subjectivist totalism as their ambitious morality could create a much larger number of slightly happy individuals instead of a small number of very happy individuals, without thereby violating the spirit of the second principle above. Their defence would be that they acted on a defensible notion of what's best for possible people or beings in aggregate, as an interest group. By contrast, potential creators dedicated to some non-person-affecting ambitious morality are motivated to benefit potential people or beings well beyond avoiding complaints. They want to hear out possible people or beings 
to learn what's best for them. Appeals might go like this. Possible person A. Maximise my chances of coming into existence with a favourable life trajectory. I'm okay running some risk of landing in an unfavourable one. Possible person B. Minimise my chances of coming to exist with an unfavourable life trajectory. Compared to my non-existence, I wouldn't feel grateful about coming to live. Heading. Examples of minimal morality versus ambitious morality. To illustrate the distinction, I'll give examples of common-sense statements about the ethics of procreating or having children. I justify each statement via one of three principles. Minimal morality. Ambitious morality. People can choose their own goals. Examples. People are free to decide against becoming parents. People can choose their own goals. Next example. People are free to want to have as many children as possible. People can choose their own goals. As long as the children are happy in expectation. Minimal morality. Next example. People are free to try to influence other people's moral stances and parenting choices. People can choose their own goals. For instance, Joanne could promote antinatalism and Marianne could promote totalism. Two different specifications of ambitious morality. As long as their persuasion attempts remain within the boundaries of what is acceptable in a civil society. Minimal morality. Next example. All parents must provide a high degree of care for their children. Minimal morality. And that's the end of that list of examples. For comparison, readers may, on their own, think about how these examples would work within the axiology-focused framework, where the answer is usually some form of it depends on the correct axiology. Section heading. Famous, or infamous, population ethics problems. I'll now sketch how one could apply my approach to familiar questions or issues in population ethics. One thing I want to highlight is how the distinction between minimal morality and ambitious morality can motivate person-affecting views. Ambitious morality focused on benefiting existing and sure-to-exist people or beings. Minimal morality for possible people or beings. And this section of population ethics problems has a series of headings with details under each one. The headings are procreation asymmetries, the transitivity of better-than relations, independence of irrelevant alternatives, or IAA, the repugnant conclusion, the pinprick argument, and the non-identity problem. Now, here are the details for each of these. Procreation asymmetries. Minimal morality for possible people or beings contains a weak procreation asymmetry because... Don't create minds that wish they had never been born is generally less morally demanding than create happy minds who will be grateful for their existence. Arguably, it also contains a procreation asymmetry for the more substantial reason that creating a specific person singles them out from the sea of all possible people or beings in a way that not creating them does not. And this paragraph had a couple of footnotes. One was after create happy minds who will be grateful for their existence. And it read, In typical circumstances, many courses of action are compatible with not pushing a child into a pond, whereas only one type of action is compatible with rescuing an already drowning child. See a post by Katya Grace that's linked here in the footnote. 
who noted that person-affecting views structurally resemble the action-omission distinction around property rights. And the second of those footnotes fell after the sentence, creating a specific person singles them out from the sea of all possible people or beings in a way that not creating them does not. And it read, If I fail to create a happy life, I'm acting suboptimally towards the subset of possible people who'd wish to be in that spot. But I'm not necessarily doing anything to highlight that particular subset. Other possible people who wouldn't mind non-existence, and others yet, would want to be created, but only under more specific conditions or circumstances. By contrast, when I make a person who wishes they had never been born, I singled out that particular person in the most real sense. If I could foresee that they would be unhappy, the excuse, some other possible minds wouldn't be unhappy in your shoes, isn't defensible. And that's the end of those two footnotes. We return to the next part of this procreation asymmetries heading. Ambitious morality comes in different specifications, some of which contain a procreation asymmetry, others don't. Subjectivist person-affecting views import the procreation asymmetry from minimal morality to possible people or beings, while focusing their caring budget on existing and sure-to-exist people or beings. Preference utilitarianism for existing and sure-to-exist people or beings, minimal morality for possible people or beings. Subjectivist versions of totalism and antinatalism care about what's best for possible people or beings, but they're built on different accounts of how to best benefit this interest group. They follow minimal morality for existing and sure-to-exist people or beings. And there's a footnote here in this paragraph that reads, For two possible perspectives and some counter-arguments and considerations on both sides, see Joe Carlsmith's post Against Neutrality About Creating Happy Lives and my post on Tranquilism. And there are some links there in the footnote. That's the end of that footnote. Moving on from procreation asymmetries, we have the next heading, the transitivity of better-than relations. Still in the section, famous or infamous population ethics problems. According to minimal morality, it's neutral to create the perfect life and equally neutral to create a merely quite good life. Treating these two outcomes equally seems incompatible with doing what's best for newly created people or beings. However, minimal morality isn't about doing the most moral or altruistic thing, so this seems fine. For any ambitious morality, there's an intuition that well-being differences in morally relevant others should always matter. I believe that this is the intuition why some effective altruists are outspoken against person-affecting views. However, I think there's an underappreciated justification or framing for person-affecting views, where these views essentially say that possible people or beings are morally relevant others, only according to minimal morality, so they are deliberately placed outside the scope of ambitious morality. Next heading. Independence of Irrelevant Alternatives, or IAA, and a footnote after this heading contains a link to an example and an explanation of this principle. On with the main text. Same as above, both minimal morality and person-affecting views tend to violate the transitivity of better-than relations, or IAA, or both. For minimal morality, this is arguably fine, because the goal isn't to maximally benefit. 
for person affecting ambitious morality, this is arguably fine because the view concentrates its caring budget on existing and sure to exist people or beings. Next heading The Repugnant Conclusion. Once again, we have a link to a description of this. It makes a difference whether to turn an existing paradise like population into a much larger, less happy on average population. Versus whether we're comparing two options for colonizing a faraway galaxy with new people or beings. The fact that people rarely highlight this difference illustrates how the axiology focused approach conceptualizes the philosophical option space in a strangely limited way. In the first version of the repugnant conclusion, minimal morality toward sure to exist people prohibits lowering the life quality in the paradise like population. Unless sufficiently many paradise inhabitants would endorse the change. So there's no ambitious morality that could justify the repugnant conclusion here. In the second version, different specifications of ambitious morality will give widely differing answers, ranging from the smaller population is preferable to it doesn't matter or it depends on how other existing people feel about the matter to the larger population is preferable. Next heading, the pinprick argument. The pinprick argument is a thought experiment to highlight the absurd implications of negative utilitarianism as an objective morality. And there's a link to an essay for more. Same as above, it makes a difference whether to extinguish an existing paradise like population because of a pinprick of discomfort or suffering, versus whether we're contemplating the creation of a new paradise like population with the pinprick. In the first version, minimal morality towards sure to exist people prohibits bringing about extinction. Even in the second version, minimal morality towards sure to exist people arguably demands creating the paradise like population. Some existing people would presumably greatly prefer the paradise population to come into existence, which seems a good enough reason for minimal morality to ask of us to push that button. Minimal morality is mostly about avoiding causing harm, but there's no principled reason never to include an obligation to benefit. The categorical action omission of libertarianism seems too extreme. If all we had to do to further others' goals were to push a button and accept a pinprick of disvalue on our ambitious morality, we'd be jerks not to press that button. Here's the next heading the non identity problem. See this link for an unfortunately somewhat lengthy introduction, and that's a hyperlink. The non identity problem remains tricky for minimal morality and person affecting versions of ambitious morality. I don't feel like I have an optimal answer. The court hearing analogy leaves things underdefined. A footnote here reads As a side note, there's a version of the non identity problem where instead of focusing on differences between people's identities, We focus on differences between people's types of interests or goals. Let's say we create grateful to exist Ramon instead of detached from life Nadieshta. We did well by Ramon's standards, even though Nadieshta would have counted as neutral in the same life trajectory. In a sense, we only benefited Ramon because we got lucky that he felt like he was benefited. Or maybe we even deliberately created him with the type of psychology that could be benefited this way. Is this okay? I'd say yes to some degree, because we cannot act without implicitly influencing the interests of the people we create. 
and leaving things up to chance would be worse. However, it seems objectionable to use this in our favour to exploit newly created people and give them worse life circumstances. That's the end of the footnote, and we return to the next paragraph under the heading The Non-Identity Problem. One pathway I find promising is thinking less about harming or benefiting a specific individual and more about whether we're lending sufficient care or concern to the interests of newly created people or beings. As an interest group, the latter have their interests violated if someone creates mediocre life trajectory Cynthia instead of great life trajectory Ali, even if Cynthia herself wasn't harmed. Some recent work in population ethics explores similar directions. See this paper, that's a link, by Taruji Thomas, or this one, by Christopher Meacham, discussed on an EA forum post that's linked here in the article. And a footnote reads, hat tip to Michael St. Jules again. Back to the main text, we come to a new section. Section heading, Limitations and Open Questions. Now that I've described my framework, I want to note some of its limitations. The exact reach of minimal morality is fuzzy or underdefined. How much is entailed by don't be a jerk? I haven't provided any attempt to answer precisely how far-reaching minimal morality is, so I understand that my proposal may seem unsatisfying. That said, I think this sort of underdefinedness is okay. A lot of things in ethics seem fuzzy. There's a relevant difference between something being underdefined in the sense of having fuzzy boundaries versus underdefined in the sense of, depending on how you specify this, you end up with opposite answers to decision problems like the repugnant conclusion, etc. Next point. The exact nature of and justification for minimal morality could be clearer. While polishing this post, I read Richard Ngo's new post, Moral Strategies at Different Capability Levels. I found his framing illuminating and have tried to incorporate it in my post, but mostly with late-stage edits instead of some more principled approach. Next point. The non-identity problem doesn't yet have a satisfying answer within my framework. See my discussion in the previous section. I doubt that coming up with any specific solution to non-identity issues would change the practical priorities of effective altruists. But further work on this topic could help evaluate whether I'm perhaps shrugging deeper problems with my framework under the carpet. A footnote here reads, I believe that finding problems in specific thought experiments can unearth bigger justification issues with the larger framework. See also the post, Future Proof Ethics, and there's a link here in the footnote. Returning to the post, we get the next limitation slash open question. I don't give a precise account of what it is about interests or goals that makes something conditionally valuable. With my framework, I endorse some version of a preference-based view, but there are many different versions of that. Working out a more concise theory of conditional value could be useful for further assessing my framework. And there's a footnote here after, I endorse some version of a preference-based view, but there are many different versions of that, and it reads... For instance, the difference between satisfaction versions and object versions. See a post by Michael St. Jules that's linked here. Population ethics without axiology seems closer to object versions? That's the end of that footnote and that section. Back in the main text, we have a new section. Section heading, 
Recommendations for long-termists. In an EA forum post linked here, Will McCaskill defines long-termism as follows. There's a brief footnote here. He also introduces definitions for strong long-termism. Quote, long-run outcomes are the thing we should be most concerned about. And very strong long-termism. Quote, long-run outcomes are of overwhelming importance. And returning to the main text, we just read Will McCaskill defines long-termism as follows. Long-termism is the view that positively influencing the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. Based on my framework, I have the following recommendations for people interested in evaluating or promoting long-termism. This comes as a list of bullet points, each listing a main idea and then giving some detail. The main ideas are Highlight the existence of alternative frameworks, alternatives to something has intrinsic value, The next is asking or caring about how much other people care about long-run outcomes. The next is emphasising more the ways ethics is likely subjective. And the final one is treating person-affecting views more fairly. And now here's the detail for each of those. Highlight the existence of alternative frameworks, alternatives to something has intrinsic value. First off, My framework proposal is just that, a proposal. I don't expect all long-termists to adopt it. Still, the framework seems valid to me. So far, many long-termists frame the discussion as though there's no alternative to something has intrinsic value. Next point. Asking or caring about how much other people care about long-run outcomes. Here's the detail. In the axiology-focused framework, the degree to which long-termism applies is primarily a philosophical question, though the causal reach of our actions also matters. Also, when long-termism applies, it applies equally to everyone interested in moral action. By contrast, within my framework, the degree or degrees to which long-termism applies can depend on existing people's attitudes towards the long-run future. I think there's something justifiably off-putting about discussions of long-termism that neglect this perspective. For what it's worth, I suspect that a non-trivial portion of people outside effective altruism care about long-run outcomes a great deal, just that they maybe care about them in ways that don't necessarily reflect totalism or thoroughgoing aggregation for newly created people or beings. Overall, I see multiple benefits to asking and caring about how others care about the long-run future, both strategic, how long-termism is perceived, and normative, deciding between different degrees of long-termism applies. And there was a footnote in this paragraph after, the degrees to which long-termism applies can depend on existing people's attitudes towards the long-run future. And it reads, How many care and how much they care, or how much they would care if they were ideally informed. See the section on idealised values in this post. That's a link. And that's the end of the footnote. Now we move to the next point. Next point. Emphasising more the ways ethics is likely subjective. Here's the detail. When arguing in favour of some version of long-termism, I recommend flagging the possibility that there may not be an objective answer. Instead, I'd say something like the following. 
Long-termism is a position many effective altruists endorse after contemplating what's entailed by their motivational commitment to do the most good. Here's why. Now insert arguments that aim to appeal to people's fundamental intuitions. Another way of saying this is, encourage others to join by telling them what sort of future you're fighting for and why. To be fair, I think many long-termists already do this. And here's the last point here in the recommendations section. Treating person-affecting views more fairly? EA discourse about person-affecting views has sometimes been crude or overly simplistic. At the extreme, I remember framings that went like this, quote, Do you think the welfare of people in the future should be discounted? Yes or no? If you think no, then you favour totalism in population ethics. Footnote, some people also have person-affecting views, but these are widely regarded to run into unworkable problems. End quote. I think the following angle on person-affecting views is underappreciated. Quote, Preference utilitarianism for existing and sure to exist people or beings. Minimal morality for possible people or beings. I agree that person-affecting views don't give satisfying answers to what's best for possible people or beings. But that seems fine. It's only within the axiology-focused approach that a theory of population ethics must tell us what's best, for both possible people or beings and for existing or sure to exist people or beings simultaneously. This was an audio version of Population Ethics Without Axiology, a framework, by Lucas Glor. Posted on the 3rd of August 2022, this reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.